You're listening to Yap, Young and Profiting Podcast, a place where you can listen, learn, and profit. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Hala Taha, and on Young and Profiting Podcast, we investigate a new topic each week and interview some of the brightest minds in the world. My goal is to turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your everyday life, no matter your age, profession, or industry. There's no fluff on this podcast, and that's on purpose. I'm here to uncover value from my guests by doing the proper research and asking the right questions. If you're new to the show, we've chatted with the likes of ex-FBI agents, real estate moguls, self-made billionaires, CEOs, and best-selling authors. Our subject matter ranges from enhancing productivity, how to gain influence, the art of entrepreneurship, and more. If you're smart and like to continually improve yourself, hit the subscribe button because you'll love it here at Young and Profiting Podcast. This week on Yap, we're chatting with Josh Kaufman, a best-selling author, researcher, and speaker whose proven shortcuts have helped millions of individuals and businesses find a way to educate themselves and reach their goals faster than ever thought possible. Josh's TED Talk, The First 20 Hours, has been viewed over 22 million times, making it one of the top 25 most viewed TED Talks published to date. His research has been featured by the New York Times, the BBC, and the Wall Street Journal, among many others, and he's published three best-selling books along the way. The First 20 Hours, How to Fight a Hydra, and The Personal MBA, which is now in its 10th anniversary edition. Josh was so smart and so interesting that I ended up chatting with him for almost two hours. And so as a result, I've split this episode into two parts. You are listening to part two right now. In part one or episode number 106, we concentrate on Josh's breakout book, The Personal MBA, which is literally taught in MBA courses around the world because it's that good. Part one is all about launching a new business or side hustle, and we covered things like how to test an idea, how to find a good market, how to price your offering, selling tips, and much more. Part two of this episode, or number 107, which is what you're currently listening to, we switch gears and we talk about something equally as interesting, how to learn a new skill in just 20 hours. We uncover the emotional obstacles we need to get over when learning a new skill, the myths involved with learning a new skill, and the four steps of rapid skill acquisition. We also dig into Josh's experience on TEDx with him having one of the most viral sessions to date and how it changed his life. Okay, so if you guys are interested in learning more about, you know, how to start a business, getting this, you know, condensed version of an MBA in a book, I would highly recommend going to check out the personal MBA. It's in its 10th edition. So encourage all of you guys to go check out that book. And now I want to switch gears to the first 20 hours. So this is your new book. And it's also a TED talk that you had back in 2013. So in this TED talk, you talked about it takes 10,000 hours to learn a new skill. And that's what we've all been conditioned to believe, right? So this was like a myth that we all heard. It it had some scientific basing behind it, but it was kind of a game of telephone gone wrong. So explain that to us. Talk to us about this 10,000 hours myth to acquire a new skill and what you discovered when you looked into it. Yeah. So this really came from a a couple of, of different intersecting interests of mine. Part of it is is just I, I like learning things. I, I like experimenting. I like being able to do things I've I've never been able to do before. That I find that intrinsically rewarding. And so I'm really curious, like when you when you have never done something before, but you want to, what's the best way to go about doing that? 
Like how, how do you go from not knowing anything and not being good at all to, to being pretty good in a, in a short period of time? And uh, at, at the time, and, and even still, I was going through the transition of, of being a parent for the first time. And a lot of the time and energy that I was, I was uh, using to learn new things was now being invested in, in my kids and my family. And so when you don't have a lot of upfront time, you know, free energy to invest, efficiency becomes a much bigger concern than it ever had been. And so there's that, that personal interest. But then also this, this was the ascendancy of, of the 10,000 hours rule, uh, which is, uh, has been around in, in, in various incarnations for a while. Um, it, it started with the work of Kay Anders Erickson, who is a, a professor at the University of Florida, um, who recently passed. He was just a, 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 a giant of psychological research. And he did a lot of, of, of research around skill acquisition. And in a series of studies, uh, the, the most famous one being of, of violinists, like, okay, trying to predict who are going to be the top violinists from a particular school. And they did studies of, you know, how much did those violinists practice under the idea that, well, you know, probably the folks who practiced more are, are probably better at playing the violin. And some of those studies basically said, yeah, I mean, that's, that's true. And the rough order of magnitude to get to be the best of the best was around 10,000 hours plus or minus. Um, there has been some additional uh, research that indicates the variation of that is extreme. So, you know, think of it as, you know, error bars above or below 10,000 hours. It, it, like the error bars are like three or $4,000 or three or 4,000 hours a piece. Like just the range of mastery is extreme. So there was, it's an interesting question, right? Like if you want to become the best in the world of, of something or like, you know, in the top 0.001% of a particular skill, what does it take to get there? Interesting question. Like, you want to be a professional athlete? How much are you going to need to practice? Like, in going to our conversation earlier about status, that feels like really, really interesting and cool to think about, right? Like, how much of my life would I have to invest in, in something to be like, like an Olympic gold medalist or, you know, things like that? And so most of the research and most of the conversation around skill was all about that question. Like, what does it take to get to mastery? How do you become the best in the world? And I realized at, at a certain point, like, that's not the question. That's not the question for most of us. The question is, if we want to learn how to do something that we're not able to do right now, we're not talking about mastery at all. We're talking about competence. We're, we're talking about going from nothing to like doing something. We're not competing against the world. We're competing against ourselves and our previous lack of ability. And so I wanted to answer the question of what does it take to go from nothing to being pretty good? And, and that is really, it's a valuable topic to consider and think about and, and care about. Because particularly for adults, when we begin learning something we've never done before, those early hours of practice are hell. Like, it's just, it's frustrating. Like, you think it feels like you should be able to do this thing and you just can't get yourself to do it for whatever reason. And what I found with adult learners is that 
people give up way too quickly. So there's an enormous amount of psychological research that says the most efficient hours of practice that we will ever spend are the early hours. Like we improve, think of it like per hour of effort invested, the biggest rate of improvement is right at the beginning. It's just the beginning's really difficult. And so most people never make it. And, and so what I found both through research and then replicating it in my own experiments is the first 20-ish hours of practice are very frustrating, very difficult, but very effective. And so, you know, the, the level of skill or the level of competence that you're able to achieve after a very small amount of practice in the grand scheme of things is pretty significant. And so if you have a way of making those early hours of practice more effective and more efficient than they otherwise could be or would be without having a plan, you can become way, way better at a huge variety of things. You know, whatever personal or professional things that you care about, a very narrow strategic investment of time and energy can, can produce some very extreme rewards. And, um, you just need to, to go about doing it in a smart way. Yeah. So you're talking about, you, you were saying before that the first 20 hours are very frustrating. You also said, you know, in your TED talk, and I'm sure in your book, that just getting started is a barrier because emotionally it's really hard for us to even just get started. So it's really funny that we brought up this camera example because in real life, I have a YouTube camera that I got for Christmas, a very expensive one, and it's been sitting in my box since Christmas and I haven't even opened it up. Now I'm very tech savvy. I run automations and, and do I can do everything when it comes to technology. But for some reason, I have not opened my box. I am scared of learning how to use this new camera. So talk to us about the emotions behind starting something new. Yeah, there's, there's something interesting that happens. And this was, this was particularly highlighted after my kids were born. Of You never see a toddler, like right when they're at this, the stage of, of standing on their own two feet and starting to take a step. A toddler will never take a step, fall, sit down, and say, say to himself or herself, wow, I'm just really bad at walking. I need to, I need to not do this anymore. This is, this is terrible. And quit, right? So you, you see them want to do a thing. They try to do the thing. They fail, but they learn and they adjust and they keep at it. And then eventually they're able to do the thing. And so I think that children have this reputation of, of just learning so quickly, you know, absorbing the world around them like a sponge. That's not exactly true. Like when, when you actually look at a child learning, they're just failing over and over and over and over again. The secret is that they don't care as much. It doesn't keep them from trying again in the same way that, that it does an adult. And so adults, I've found, we, we place a lot of unnecessary pressure or shoulds on ourselves. A good classic example is, um, which has some research literature backing it, is that most kids love to draw, will draw all the time just for fun. And then there's a point in late middle school to early junior high where kids stop drawing. And it's that point where they can see what they want to draw in their minds and the thing that they put on paper is not representative of that. And that becomes very frustrating. And so there's this 
there's this self-consciousness that happens when you're learning as an adult. It's like, I should be able to do better than I'm doing. I should be able to figure out this damn camera. I should be able to do this thing that I want to be able to do. And I just, I can't do it yet. And it's the emotional experience that's the barrier. It's not your intelligence. It's not your capacity for improvement. It's not your capability to learn or improve. It is 100% an emotional barrier. And so I think knowing that in advance of learning is, is a tremendous gift, right? Like you don't have to, to worry so much about the intrinsic ability part. It's just like, no, this is the experience everyone has. It's something, you know, talking earlier about like the sales objections that you know are coming so you could prepare for them in advance. This is that, but improving ourselves. We know the frustration is coming. We know that it's normal. And we know that it doesn't take an enormous amount of persistence to get to the point of seeing very real, very tangible improvement. And so having a strategy to get through those frustrating early hours makes it both much more likely that you're going to pick up the skill to begin with, but it makes it much more likely that you're going to persist long enough to see an actual improvement. Even just like you said, knowing that there's an emotional, you know, barrier to starting something new. Even when I, when I was watching your TED talk, I was like, oh my gosh, that's why I haven't opened my YouTube camera. Like I need to just do it, you know? So even just knowing, so I hope everybody out there listening, if there's something that you're scared to do, I hope you take the actions to do it. And let's talk about what a learning curve looks like. Cause I think that's important before we go into the steps of actually, you know, acquiring a new skill and going through some of your four steps. So first describe to us what a learning curve looks like. Yeah. So this is something that's kind of bandied about a lot. And people will talk about steep learning curves as, as if that's a bad thing. No, it's actually a really good thing. So, so think of it like um, you're graphing your improvement per time spent or per, per minute or per hour spent in a skills. If let, let's, let's say, you know, you, you take a skill that you would only improve like 1% per year the learning curve is just like this slow ramp up. And that's really bad. That's really frustrating. Those are the things that, that drive you nuts. Steep learning curves are, you want to see dramatic improvement at the beginning, and then you reach some sort of plateau. And so the plateau, you can think of it, you know, going back to the, the business concepts, the plateau is the point of diminishing returns. Like that's the point where there's still the opportunity for improvement, but it's going to take a lot of time and energy to get to that next level. So, so think this is, this is something where, you know, when you get to the master level, if you are a chess grandmaster or an Olympic sprinter or whatever, you will work for years, you know, in the, the sprinter example, for like a, a 0.01 second improvement on your 100 meter time. Like that, that's where the mastery, like, putting an enormous amount of, of energy into it, just like a tiny, tiny marginal improvement. That's where you see that. But at the beginning of the process, the steep learning curve is like, no, you're, you're just spending a few hours and you're going from like terrible to pretty decent to really good to competent in a very, very compressed period of time. So the, the research literature suggests that, um, this is called the power law of practice, has been replicated many, many times uh, by psychological researchers who will give, you know, like a, a, either a cognitive or a physical movement. It's called a motor task. And they'll just graph, you know, give them something that, that you can like observe in time and, you know, assess, assess um, competence. 
And you'll see very quickly, like those first few hours of practice are super effective. Like you go, you go from being really bad to pretty decent in a short period of time, and then you level off. And so my question is like, okay, for all of the things that would be useful to learn either for work, you know, some professional skill, you know, whether it's, it's a physical movement or, you know, a cognitive skill, something you think about, or just all the things that we do for fun. What is the order of magnitude that we can expect the learning curve to take for a wide variety of both cognitive and motor skills? And so what I found through my own research and my own experimentation, because this is not a theoretical exercise for me, like I, I do this stuff all the time, is what order of magnitude are we, are we talking about here? And I always found that hours zero to four or five are the frustration barrier. Like that's the worst part of the whole process. You're just frustrated. You can't do it. You know you can't do it. Something starts to change between hours four and six where you start to see yourself being able to perform in a way that you've never been able to perform before. And that's where things start to get really interesting. And then by, and there's, there's some variation here, but, but between hours 10 to 20, for me, two things happen. Um, one is that you know you're a lot more competent now than you were when you, like the improvement is night and day clear. And that's also where I find the frustration really to a, to a great extent goes away. So continuing to practice after that point is, is way easier than it was at the beginning. Like you've reached a basic level of competence. You know what you're doing. You're no longer so confused. You're in a place where you're still making mistakes, but you also know enough about what you're doing that you can notice when you make a mistake and then correct it. And it's that part of the process, like having a certain level of skill, having a lack of frustration and being able to self-correct as you practice that's what gets you from pretty good to really good over a longer period of time. But it's that early critical period that really makes or breaks the skill to begin with. And what are some of the skills that you personally have learned using this method? Yeah, so uh, for, for the book, I, I did um, six and it was, it was a combination of both cognitive mental skills and, and physical motor skills. On the professional side, we were talking uh, earlier about my background. I came out of college thinking that programming was the most boring thing on the face of the earth and why would people spend their time tracking down weird semicolons in the midst of like crazy code. And um, it wasn't until I had actual business problems that I could solve by writing a computer program to do the thing that I wanted to do that I really became interested in, yeah, I want to figure out how to do this. I have written now four web app applications that are being used in a day-to-day -day business context with profit and loss responsibility. And like I'm, I'm running my business on code that I wrote and I learned how to write that code in the process of researching the first 20 hours. So it's something that even... So I think the first 20 hours came out in 2013. And so eight years later, I'm still doing it. I'm still getting better at it. And I can do things now that I wasn't capable of eight years ago because I started the process in, in a, a really fundamentally useful way. There are, I learned how to play the ukulele just for fun, which is, is still fantastic. I don't practice anywhere near as, as much as I would like to, 
But all of the things that I learned how to do in the process of researching the first 20 hours, I am better than that, that level of capability, even with intermittent practice over a, a very long period of time. So I, I think that's the thing about this particular project that I really enjoyed. It's universally applicable. doesn't matter what you want to learn or what level of skill you're, you're aiming for. It is a useful process that will, will start you out on the right foot. You can apply it to anything. And then being able to do that, like, this is what life is made of. Like, being able to figure out how to do the things that are important and valuable and interesting to you, it, it's great. So it's, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that the framework has helped a lot of people learn things that are important and useful for them. And that they're able to start the process in a way that's likely to get really good results and, and help them achieve whatever it is that's important. And that's, I, I just find that awesome. Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. There are 180 million senior level decision makers on LinkedIn and 10 million C-suite decision makers. These people are on LinkedIn and they're in the mode to buy. They're using LinkedIn for their buying journey to research vendors or sales reps that they might work with, to look up how to solve their problems, to learn from industry thought leaders. They're in the mode to buy, whereas on other platforms, they're in the mode to be entertained. You want to get them in the right mindset. You want to cut through the noise with LinkedIn ads. In fact, 79% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as their top channel for paid media. And LinkedIn has the best targeting because they've got all these different inputs. People are putting their resume basically up on there. And so there's so many keywords that they can use to target the right decision makers so they can hear about how you solve their problems. And I've got a special gift for all you young and profiters who want to try LinkedIn ads. You can get $100 credit. LinkedIn was super generous. If you want to make B2B marketing everything it can be and get $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. And this is just so fascinating. And to your point, like skills are the foundation of everything. Skills are how you, you know, can demand a high salary. Skills are how you can start a business and create a product or a service and have the expertise to do so. Like skills are everything, especially for young people. Like learning is everything, getting new skills. I always talk about this. I'm always talking about skill stacking, getting experience, learning new things. So I think this is really relevant to my audience. Can you go into the four steps of Rapid skill acquisition. Yeah, so um, the best way of thinking about it, and I'm I'm a big big fan of of checklists or you know reminding yourself to do certain things. And I, I since expanded it, so there was a second addition to uh, to the first twenty hours that makes it five steps or or, or adds a step zero, uh, which is probably the more accurate way to put it. The first thing is just to, to decide what you want to be able to do, and that sounds so common sense, and yet. In the years since I've published the, the first edition of the, uh, the first 20 hours, that's the step where most people get stuck. And, and so there's a lot of, you know, when, when you're thinking about learning something that you want to be able to do, there's a lot of very general, very abstract thinking 
that goes on. And I, I usually frame it in the context of languages. So like, I want to be able to speak Italian. That's a, that's a really broad goal. That doesn't really give you very much to hold on to at the beginning. So the bigger, the more abstract, the less specific and concrete the thing that you want to be able to do is, the harder it is to get started because the whole thing feels big and overwhelming. And so the, the first thing to do is just decide specifically, like, what do you want to be able to do? What does that look like? How do you know? Is, can you define for yourself, like, knowing when you've gotten there or when you're getting to that level of skill that you desire? And the more specific and concrete you are in that, the better. From there, you can take that and break it down into much smaller parts. So this is the step of deconstructing the scale, taking this really big thing and making it a series of small things. The classic example is that many skills are actually um, bundles of smaller subskills that you're doing together. And so think of like a, um, a, cl- a classic mastery-ish sort of game, like golf, right? Golf is not one thing. Golf is a collection of lots of different things that you happen to do in some order during the context of a game. But um, driving off the tee and putting on the green, two very, very different movements, skills, abilities, being able to, to perform in those situations. And so for a lot of the things that we want to do, just thinking through like, am I doing one specific thing over and over and over again? Or are there subparts to this that I could just focus on just maybe a smaller piece of the puzzle for a little bit, get good at that. And then the way that you can use that is some of those subskills are used way more often than others. And so the most efficient, effective thing to do is you practice the subskills that you're going to be using the most first because that's going to give you the, the best improvement for the, for the global skill. So it just takes a little bit of research, and that's step three. And so you don't want to do too much research. Too much research is a subtle form of procrastination. And I've, I've, this, this is a struggle for me. I, I, I do research. It's easy to get stuck here. But really, just a, a handful of hours with a book, with a video, with a coach, with, with, with some source of information that can help you identify like what are those important things and focus on those first, that's how you make you, the, the early hours of practice as effective and efficient as, as you possibly can. Yeah, and I think in your TED Talk, you gave an example of how you, know, you learned the ukulele and there was like, like four or five main chords for like every single song. And like, that's, that's the kind of stuff that you need to discover before you dive in. So you're not learning you know, every single possible thing, you're focusing on the things that are going to give you the most reward and going to kind of level you up as quickly as possible. So just wanted to call that out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no. And and there's, there are related ideas here. So it's like a lot of people talk about the 80-20 principle or the critical few, like, you know, in anything that there's, there's a small bundle of things that are going to be most important or used the most, focus on those first. Um, Language is a, a brilliant example of this. Um, there's there's a pattern called Zipf's Law, Z-I-P-F, if you want to look it up on, on Wikipedia. And it basically says that you know the vast majority of usage of a language is concentrated in about 100 words. And so if you're learning a new language, like it would make sense. Learn those words first. You're going to be using them the most and or understanding and being able to pick those up. 
is going to be very useful very quickly. And so all skills exhibit that to a greater or lesser extent. So just a little bit of research can, can help you get there. In the same way, removing barriers to practice, this is step four, is really important because we live in a very distracting world with you know, lots of things going on. If you're running a business and you're, you're trying to learn a business skill, well, how do you fit that in in the context of meetings and email and projects and deadlines and all of these things? You know, if you're learning something for fun, you have family and social commitments and, you know, your work and all of these things that are, are, are taking time away. And so the more you can set aside some dedicated time, put away your phone, block the internet if you have to, just make it as easy as possible to practice the thing you've decided uh, that's important and as difficult as possible to do anything aside from practicing uh, what you've decided is important. That's going to help. And then the last part is where the title, The First 20 Hours, comes from. And it's the most important psychological part, which is pre-committing to 20 hours of, of focused practice. And the pre-commitment is, is the thing that does the work. So you can say, okay, if I'm going to start this at all, if this is important to me, I'm going to put at least 20 hours of practice into this. If I'm terrible, I'm going to be terrible for 20 hours. If I hate it, I'm going to hate it for 20 hours. And if I get to the 20-hour mark and I'm not good and I'm not enjoying myself and I would rather do something else, I have full permission to do something else after I get to that point. But I'm not going to quit until I get to that point. And so this is helpful for two reasons, I think. The first is it's a good reality check. Because if you're not willing to invest at least this amount of time and energy into it, you're probably not going to make a lot of progress regardless. So it's kind of like a qualification, it's a, a, a filter. Like, you know, have a, a minimum amount of seriousness to this before you get started. But then the other part is this is how you overcome the frustration barrier. It's like, yep, I know it's going to be hard and I'm committing to the hard part and it's going to be fine. And I am going to defer my judgment on my own skill level until later. So for now, I'm just going to focus on the practice. When I get to the 20-hour mark, that's when I'll decide whether or not I want to continue this. So this is something that I know I'm going to go and reference back over and over again. There's always like moments in my podcast that I just remember and in other interviews and in, even when I'm getting interviewed myself, I'll just like remember them. I know that this is this framework in terms of how to acquire skill is going to be something that I remember forever. So thank you so much for sharing. And if you're listening, I would rewind and go listen back to that because it's amazing and go check out his TED talk. So speaking of your TED talk, it had almost, I think, 25 million views. It was like one of the most popular TED Talks ever. Let me ask you a personal question. Like, how did that change your life? Like, that must have been such a big deal. And TED Talks were back in, I think you did it in 2013. That was a huge deal back then, even more than it is now. So how did that change your life? Yeah, no, it, it's been really interesting. In all of my projects, I, I try to learn something new. And so, you know, for, for the personal MBA, it was all about like, how can I take this massive subject and try to teach someone who may have never done it before, or thought about it before? Like, can I condense something big into something manageable? And so for the first 20 hours, it's not as big of a, a, a subject as, you know, varied as, as business is, but it's, 
it's important and it's valuable. And, and so that was the first 20 hours was my project of like, can I take an important idea and spread it? And, and can I, can I get an important message out to the maximum number of people that, that I can reach with it? And, you know, who knows what the result of that is going to be, but I'm pretty sure like, this is an important part of life. And so it's, it's, it's going to help people if I can just get the word out. And so the Ted talk, I had no idea what to expect. And, you know, there were 500 people in the audience at the time that I gave the talk. And I had prearranged things. So uh, no spoilers for, for people who haven't seen it yet, but I arranged to have the end of a particular skill that I was practicing, like be on stage at that, at that, that moment. So people could see what it looked like. And it was terrifying. And I didn't know how it was going to turn out. Like that was, that was very much a, you know, doing a, a trapeze act without a net below you uh, sort of thing. And I'm both very happy that it turned out the way that it did. And then, yeah, it's, it's Ted at the time was, was just starting to become, you know, a, a popular cultural force. And I, I'm really happy that when something takes off like that, it's like, it's because there's something intrinsically valuable to it. So that was my contribution. But then, you know, both Ted being willing to spread the word to a large group of people, and then also to the people who watched it, used it, talked to other people about it, said, hey, you know, I saw this video about this cool thing. You should see it too. Like, I can't take credit for any of that. And I, I think in general, like of all of the things to, to contribute to people in the world, like helping them become better at things that are valuable and important to them. Like, I, I, feel, I feel really good about that as, as a contribution to the world of, of ideas. Hey, AppFam, starting my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass was one of the best things I've ever done for my business. I didn't have to waste time figuring out all the nuts and bolts of setting up a website that had everything I needed, like a way to buy my course, subscription offerings, chat functionality, and so on, because it was super easy with Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, whether you're selling your first product, finally taking your side hustle full time, or making half a million dollars from your masterclass like me. And it doesn't matter if you're selling digital products or vegan cosmetics. Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Shopify's got you covered as you scale. Stop those online window shoppers in their tracks and turn them into loyal customers with the internet's best converting checkout. I'm talking 36% better on average compared to other options out there. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., from huge shoe brands like Allbirds to vegan cosmetic brands like Thrive Cosmetics. Actually, back on episode 253, I interviewed the CEO and founder of Thrive Cosmetics, Carissa Bodnar, and she told me about how she set up her store with Shopify and it was so plug and play, her store exploded right away. Even for a makeup artist type girl with no coding skills, it was easy for her to open up a shop and start her dream job as an entrepreneur. That was nearly a decade ago, and now it's even easier to sell more with less thanks to AI tools like Shopify Magic. And you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. 
so you can focus on the important stuff, the stuff you like to do. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting, and that's all lowercase. If you wanna start that side hustle you've always dreamed of, if you wanna start that business you can't stop thinking about, if you have a great idea, what are you waiting for? Start your store on Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. Shopify.com slash profiting for $1 per month trial period. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. So I'm, I landed my first TED Talk for June. And so I'm gearing up for that. Thank you. I haven't even started my outline or anything. Do you have any advice for me in terms of preparing? I mean, you're the most successful TED Talk speaker that I've ever had on the show, I think. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's, I think there's, there's a fine line between preparation and over-preparation. And I think um, Hala being Hala on stage is more valuable than a memorized talk that's overprepared to the point of deadness. And I, I think there's, there was a certain amount of, because I was doing something that felt risky on stage in the moment, I kind of had to be there and I couldn't overprepare and check out because I just wouldn't be able to do what I needed to do for, for the talk. And, and so I, I think there's, there's a outline and not memorization rehearse, but not too much going through a few rounds of giving the talk to a live group of people in the context that you're going to be giving the talk. I mean, that was, that was the most valuable thing in the preparation that was leading up to the event. We actually gave the talk to, it was essentially the organizers and a, a, a group of other speakers, but we did that a couple of times. I think it was two or three times before the actual event. And that really helped a lot. Like you were able to figure out, okay, spending too much time on this, not enough time on this. Let's, let's change things up. But yeah, I, I think the most important thing, as hard as it is, is to relax and be yourself and have fun and not get too worried about the process or the result. Thank you. Thanks for giving me that advice. And thanks for all the listeners for bearing with my personal question. Okay. So we talked about your first two books. We talked about the personal MBA, huge hit. Guys, everybody has read this book before. People read it in their actual MBA programs as well. We talked about the first 20 hours. Uh, You guys can watch the TED Talk or get his book. Now let's get into your third book. Just give us a high level overview because we don't have too much time. But what is How to Fight a Hydra about? How to Fight a Hydra, it was, was a weird, fun project that came out of a, a random idea I, I had one day. And um, I've always been interested in the idea of uncertainty and, and variability. And you can see it, um, it, it's a through line through the personal MBA and, and the first 20 hours. Like, how do you deal with the process of signing up for a project, you know, trying to learn a new skill and not being sure that you would be able to do it? or starting a new business and, and being uncertain whether or not it's going to succeed. There's this way that human beings approach the, uncert- the fundamentally uncertain nature of the world and how we both respond to it and how we deal with it that I just find very fascinating. And the emotional undercurrent of a lot of those things is, is fear. 
fear of the unknown, fear that we're not going to be good enough, fear that we're going to get stuck or we're going to make a bad decision or we're going to have costs to the things that we decide to do. And so I started writing this, this book about uncertainty and fear of the unknown. And there's a lot of research. There's a lot of you know, really interesting people doing work in this space. The problem is it's such a heavy topic. It's not really fun to think about. It's not fun to internalize some of these lessons. Like, you know, we live in a universe where many things are completely outside of your control and bad things can happen and there's nothing you can do about it. That's, that's not a fun place to live. But there is a lot of very good research about how we can deal with those sorts of situations in a skillful way. So we can't control everything. We can't determine the outcomes, but we can control how we think, how we act, how we make our decisions the best way we can. And so How to Fight a Hydra came out of two things. One is that, I don't know if you've ever had a project where once you get into it, it just feels way more complex and like things are happening, issues are popping up out of nowhere. You know, you'll, you'll fight a fire in one area only to have like three more fires you know, pop up in different. So I was reading um, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, which is a, a, an amazing book. And um, I really liked, so he, he was talking about this idea of resistance, right? Like knowing what you need to do and just having a really hard time getting to the, the point of actually doing it. And so he personified the problem. He calls it resistance with a capital R. And he talks about resistance as if it's a thing. And it's a really interesting way of framing the problem that, that leads to some really interesting insights. And so I started, was playing around with that idea. And the, the image, I, I've been a, a fan of, um, of science fiction and, and fantasy uh, stories for a very long time is like these problems are hydras. You know, it's, it's the monster that has, you know, six or seven different heads, and when you lop one off, two more grow back. Like you can do the same thing. You can give an analogy to this very common problem, and then with all of the research around how to deal with these problems of of uncertainty, well, you can show someone responding skillfully to a difficult situation. You don't necessarily have to like tell them about the psychological studies, you know, it, it, you, can, you can convey that information in a different way. So How to Fight a Hydra was my first fiction book that did not start as a fiction book. It, it kind of evolved into this story uh, over time. And it's, it's a quick read. You can, you can read it in less than an hour. And so it's this really short, interesting story of a person who... who decides to go hunting one of these big, scary monsters, knows it's going to be hard from the beginning, doesn't have social support in, in doing it, doesn't have the skills required to get to the end, has no idea how they're going to accomplish it. They just know that they have to for some reason. And then you get to see the protagonist of the story use some of these very skillful psychological ways of, of orienting yourself and dealing with, with things that happen in the world all the way to the end, which I won't spoil. And then the afterword is essentially explaining like, here are the origins of, of a lot of the things that the protagonist does. Here's where this comes from. Here's the research that's supporting it. So it was an interesting project that um, 
developed in a way that I did not expect, but I, I enjoyed writing how to fight a Hydra uh, immensely. And it was, it was a really fun project to do. It sounds super interesting. And, you know, judging by your first two books, I'm sure that one's also very, provides a lot of value for people who, who are reading it. So the last question I ask all my guests is, what is your secret to profiting in life? My secret to profiting in life, I think is spending a lot of time very, being very clear about what I want and what I don't want. And that, that sounds that sounds simpler than it is in practice. But I, I think that there, you know, we all have a limited amount of time and energy and capacity. And there are certain things that kind of sound good in the moment, but end up being distractions. And there are other things that sound really difficult or really frustrating that end up being the core of what it is for, for us to to live a fulfilling life, whatever that definition is for you. And so I think spending a little bit more time in that headspace, like what do I want right now? And why do I want those things? What am I doing to get those things? And what am I ignoring because it's just not important enough for me? The more you have a very clear image of that in your mind, and the more that you update that over time, because we change as people, like our situation changes, our values change, our priorities change, like keeping really up on like what you're doing and why in this moment right now in your context, the more you do that, the better decisions you'll make and the, the more effective you'll be at doing the things that are necessary to move you in the direction you want to go. I love that advice. I think that's great advice. And where can our listeners go to learn more about you and everything that you do? Yeah. So the, the best central place to find me is at joshkaufman.net. Um, you can find links to all of my books and my most recent research and writing there. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Josh. Thank you for staying well over. I'm going to make this into a two-part episode. So thank you so much. It was so valuable. Absolutely. Uh, it's so, so fun to talk. And I am looking forward to, uh, to seeing the results of your new YouTube camera. I'll follow up in a couple of weeks to see how it goes. Thank you. And you're, you're going to help me because now I'm not as scared. So thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Young and Profiting Podcast. Wow, what an amazing two-hour conversation that we just got to spend with Josh and his brilliant mind. For me, the biggest gem of this episode was learning about the emotional fear we have when it comes to learning something new. Just knowing that it's human nature and totally normal to feel that fear and to want to procrastinate when you have to learn something new, that's going to make it so much easier now to push through when you feel that fear and to just go for it and try the next time that fear creeps up. So I hope you remember that and I hope you learned something new as well. As always, I'm going to shout out a recent Apple podcast review. And if you're a longtime listener, you know that my favorite thing is an Apple podcast review because it helps our rankings and it improves our social proof. This review shout out this week is by Fly By Media. He or she says delivers every time. Hala is a master interviewer and carries amazing content from some of the best minds on the planet. It's no wonder this podcast continues to surge on all the charts. Give it a listen if you haven't. 
Thank you so much for your kind review. And it's true, we are dominating the chartable charts thanks to our popularity on apps like CastBox. And if you're listening on CastBox, I would love to hear from you. We have almost 70,000 followers on CastBox and I want to hear from you guys. I want to know what you like about the podcast, what you dislike about the podcast. Shoot me a DM and give me your feedback on Instagram or LinkedIn. And for all of you guys listening out there, no matter where you're listening, please write us a review or comment on your favorite platform. And maybe I'll be shouting out you next week. And I love to see you guys on social media. You guys can tag me on Instagram at yapwithhala or LinkedIn. Just search for my name. It's Hala Taha. And now I'm on Clubhouse. You can follow the Young and Profiting Club and find me at Hala Taha. I'm hosting live events on that app almost every single day. As always, big thanks to my amazing Yap team. This is Hala signing off.